Isn't she a wonder? <laughs> Sorry, educated, yes. <laughs> oh, well said. If you've got your Bible with you, it'd be really good if you can open it up to Genesis chapter 24. I'm going to uh, be referring to the scriptures as we move through and we'll be reading as we move along. So if you put a finger or a marker in Genesis chapter 24, it would be really good. I want to, to begin though perhaps by way of introduction by talking about flaws in me flaws in you, flaws in us all. I know that uh, I have flaws in me. There are things in me that are unhelpful, perhaps even unholy. But sometimes we need to understand those flaws are outcomes of our gifts and abilities. If you like, we could call them overdone strengths, misused or misplaced strengths. I'm a I'm an introvert and uh, as an introvert, I like to have time for myself. As an introvert, I do a lot of thinking internally. If you're an introvert, then you'll find yourself dealing with stuff inside. If you're an extrovert, on the other hand, you'll tend to think externally. So you'll talk your thoughts through. You'll want to react and interact with people as you have issues to deal with. Both are great strengths, both are required. But you know, as an introvert, if I overdo my introversion, then I can appear aloof, cold, unfriendly, perhaps even arrogant. And if you're an extrovert and you overdo your extroversion or misplace it, you might seem frivolous or vacuous, maybe even pushy, perhaps even self-centered. And it's really just a matter of a strength that's overdone. In the army, we get to do lots of uh, psychometric tests that tell us how we operate in teams. And one of the psychometric tests we've done described me as a thruster organiser. Sounds awful, doesn't it? But what they mean is my personality type and the kind of person I am means that I like to get things done. I like to achieve. That's the thruster part. The organiser is that part of me that says you achieve by being organised. You plan. You set out your plans, you put your resources together and you get your results. The trouble is, if I overdo that strength, I can discount people's needs to talk things through. I can discount people's needs to have their feelings understood and appreciated. And that can be an overdone strength and it can be a flaw in me. Now, being flawed is something I believe at times God allows. I believe God allows some flaws for our humility. You see, a proud Christian is an ugly Christian and a proud Christian is a sinner. Sometimes I think God allows flaws in us for grace towards others. Remember, Paul talks about, as you're probably used to hearing it, a thorn in the flesh. Actually, the Greek word means he had a stake, a great big chunk of wood jabbed in his side. That's what he says. And that was to keep him humble and make him gracious towards others. If I am broken, 
If I am flawed, then I learn to be gracious towards those who are also broken and flawed. And so we come to this reality, the reality of two natures that Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. Paul says, the very things I long to do, I fail to do. And the very things I loathe, they're right there at my hand. And Paul describes this tussle between here, these two natures within himself. This gold of faithfulness and godliness and the goo of broken humanity. So our flaws, what are your flaws? What things in you are goo and what things in you are gold? With those thoughts in mind, would you turn with me to Genesis as we read about Isaac. And our first reading is Genesis 24, beginning at verse 1. I'm reading for the New American Standard at this stage, so if your Bible doesn't quite track with mine, bear, bear along with us. Genesis chapter 24, verse 1. It says, Now Abraham was old and advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned. Please place your hand under my thigh and I'll make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you shall go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Suppose the woman will not come and is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? And Abraham said to him, Beware lest you take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and who swore to me saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you. And you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of goods to his master's homeland. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia. And then if you'll turn the pages over and we pick it up at verse 61. There's a great story about how the servant meets Rebecca at a well and how those things are worked out. And then we, we come to the conclusion here. And then... Rebecca arose with her maids and they mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac had come from going to Beelahroi, for he was living in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field. It was towards evening. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. 
And she said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought Rebekah into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. What we see here is Isaac, a submitted believer, and the getting of a wife. Man, Isaac must have had patience. The scripture tells us he was 40 years of age when Abraham sent the servant off to find a wife for him. All that while waiting, all that while longing, all that while expecting. What we see is this patient, believing man. He's a person who expects God's will and wisdom to come out in his life, even though he's waiting and waiting and waiting. We see a man of real prayerfulness. We see a man with a living relationship with God. Have you ever really thought about it? Waiting can be the toughest call God makes for us. You know, it's when we pray, sometimes it's great. We can pray and God says, yes. And sometimes God just says, no. But that gives us clarity. The hardest thing can be, wait. Just wait. But in that waiting... Isaac has an expectation that God would reveal his wisdom and grace. There was no wife available for Abraham from the people he knew of. And yet Isaac is submitted to Abraham, waits for God's will and wisdom to be revealed through Abraham. And he allows God to work through Abraham's servant. And that can really call for trust Trust that is pure gold to expect God to work through somebody else and to achieve his will without our intervention. That is real faith. And finally, we see Isaac, this man of prayer, meditating in the fields, waiting for God's will to be realised in his life. This meditation was a real sign of the prayerfulness of Isaac. Next slide, please. You see, the word meditate means to bow down in prayer thoughtfully. Isaac was a person who was a prayerful, believing, patient, God-fearing, godly man. And that's revealed just in these few verses. Will you turn with me now to Genesis chapter 25 as we go to more of the story of Isaac. We'll read from verse 21 to 28, just a couple of verses. Verse 21 of chapter 25. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, Rebekah, because she was barren. And the Lord answered him 
And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is so, then why am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord told her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people shall be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came forth red, and all over covered with hair like a garment. And they named him Esau. And afterwards his brother came forth in his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. And that's more patience again, isn't it? From 40 to 60 years, waiting, hoping, longing. In the ancient world, parenthood was a very important thing. To have a child in that ancient world was a a sign that you'd been validated by God, approved by God. It was also hope and security for your aged future. When your eyes were beginning to fail, when you couldn't walk so sprightly anymore, when things were going wrong in your body and health, then your children were there as your security. So to be childless was painful. A dreadful pain of being different because everybody else had children. Everybody else had these things sorted out. It was also the pain of unwanted criticisms because of course there has to be something wrong with you. There's got to be some sin involved. There has to be some dastardly thing going on. There's the pain of unwanted scrutiny as people watch because you're different. Looking for the sign, the thing that marks you and points out what the problem is. And then there was just this terrible insecurity. What when we become old and frail? And in the ancient world, this barrenness was always attributed to sin. It was considered a blessing from God to have children. If you had no children, then God was withholding his blessing. The attribution of barrenness was almost always to the woman. And so there were some patterns that were set in that ancient world. The simplest thing was get another wife. This one doesn't work, get one that does. If you couldn't do that, use concubinage. Often... People would use a wife-servant girl and we see that with Abraham and Sarah where Abraham goes into Hagar and through Hagar they expect to have a child. Then there was the possibility occasionally of divorce and if that wasn't possible, then the simplest solution was just murder the bad wife. Now you may well laugh, but these are views that people had. This was common sense. This is what everybody knew you did. These issues really haven't changed, have they, in 4,000 years or so? What's interesting when we read the story of Isaac is that he chooses none of these options. Not one of these things does he do. He doesn't do as Abraham did and go into a servant girl. 
He doesn't do what everybody else did and get another wife. He didn't attribute sin to his wife. But he went to God and prayed. And so we see in Isaac this character which was generous and kind towards his wife, faithful to his wife, loving towards Rebecca, patient and believing against all the evidence and all the cultural pressures. This is gold. This is a character of gold in this man Isaac. His faithfulness is astounding, actually. Will you turn with me now to Genesis chapter 26 and verses 1 to 6, just a very short reading. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine that occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. So Isaac went to live in Gerar. Isaac was a pastoralist and a grazier and it's a tough life. It's a tough life when you don't actually own the land for yourself. It's a tough life when you're completely dependent on the seasons. Isaac was a person who was utterly, completely dependent on God's provision as he moved from place to place, as he sought feed for his sheep, and his goats, his camels, as he sought a place to live and make ends meet. And the scripture tells us Isaac was caught in a terrible famine. It was bad enough under Abraham. Under Abraham, his father, there'd been this dreadful famine in the land and now it reached a new height. Common sense dictated going down to Egypt. Everybody else would. Why would they go to Egypt? Because Egypt had the Nile River with its regular floods and its great seasons and its predictability. There was definitely security to be had there. Egypt was the great kingdom. Egypt was where all the money and the wealth was. Egypt was an organised place. And they could go there and find food and security. It was counterintuitive to live in Gerar. There's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, Gerar is in southeast Gaza. If you look at that map, there's a yellow arrow at the side there pointing to where Gerar is. And you can see that it's, by the map colours, it's actually just on the edge of the desert. 
It was a semi-arid region. Have a look at this photograph. It's a place that's nearly a desert. Can you see how counterintuitive it is to stay somewhere like that when there's a famine, when there's a drought happening? You could go to Egypt with the great river Nile or you could stay in Gerar right on the edge of the desert. It was counterintuitive. The other thing that was counterintuitive about it, of course, is that Abraham had gone down to Gerar and created trouble there. And the king Abimelech had been greatly plagued because of Abraham. We'll get to that in just a moment. It's my guess that Isaac was on his way down to Egypt like everybody else would be. But God said, stop, stay in Gerar. And Isaac obeyed. That's real faith. I remember an experience once being fog-bound in a boat. <clears throat> I, used to, uh, I used to own a, a 25-foot boat when we were living in WA. That was when I was a rich apprentice. And uh, my brother-in-law and I used to go spearfishing together a lot. And uh, we had the, I had the boat, got it all fixed up, and we went off the coast of WA to an island that's called Fisherman's Island, which is uh, in, the, in the same chain of islands as Rottnest and Garden Island. And it's just a little rock but it's a great place for fishing. And we spent the morning diving and spearfishing and we caught quite a few fish and it was getting towards lunchtime. So we stopped, got in the boat, we're eating lunch and something about the water movement just seemed a little strange. We're in the cabin eating and I went and had a look outside and a thick fog had settled. And you know, the water had become like glass. It was just dead flat. And this thick fog, and I could, we could just barely see about 50 yards in front of, 50 metres in front of the boat. Couldn't see anything. And uh, we realised the boat had, had swung around on the cable, so we really didn't know which way was which. And my brother-in-law, Elvin, got really agitated and scared. And he said, we've got to go back to, back to port. Got to go back home. And I said, well, <laughs> Elvin, we can't see. <laughs> And, and he said, no, look, no, look. And we could just faintly see uh, large fishing boats going across about 100 yards, just barely make out the outyard, about 100 yards away from where we were. And he said, let's follow them. And I said, no, I don't think so. And he said, yeah, we'll follow them. And I thought about it for a minute. And then just barely see the sun, just, you know, like a little pale dot of light in the fog. And so I did my calculations and worked out that, where we were, and I said, no, we've got, to, we've got to travel by the sun. And we had this argument because he wanted to follow the boats and I wanted to follow the sun. Eventually, because I was my boat, we did what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> that impressed him no end, I can tell you. And he sat dejectedly in the cabin. And as, as it would work out, we steamed towards what I thought was the right direction and then I called out to him and said, come and have a look at this. And I hadn't deviated from my, my bearing. And if any of you know uh, Fremantle or Perth, they've got, the Fremantle port has long uh, piers, uh, jetties that stick out, rock things. And I was right in the middle of those as we steamed in. Absolutely perfect, which was great for me. You know. <laughs> but the point here is that it's easy to follow the crowd. 
And sometimes that sounds like common sense. But if we'd followed those fishing boats that Elvin wanted me to follow, we would have wound up at the Abrolhos Islands, which is a long way away from home. About a thousand kilometres away from home. <laughs> now think about that for Isaac. Everybody else is going to Egypt. That's where common sense says to go. And God says, no, Isaac, you stay in Gerar. Where your father Abraham had created trouble and a region that is semi-arid, in a famine. Boy, what's Isaac really like then? We see he has a living relationship with God. We see that he's got a radical countercultural faith, the obedience that comes from faith that Paul says is the essence of being a believer in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. And we see Isaac, a man who knows God's voice, so we know he has to be prayerful. This is real gold, isn't it? This is a man who has some real character. But now we come to the next part. Isaac is a man just like us, flawed. He has radical faith in a flawed character. And if you've got your Bible there, let's pick up our reading at chapter 26, verse 7. Remember, Isaac stayed in Gerar. And then we pick this up. When the men of the place asked about his wife, Isaac said, oh, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say, she is my wife, thinking the men of this, this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. And it came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Certainly, she is your wife. How then did you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said to myself, Lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, What is this you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold and the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household. And all the Philistines envied him. So we see all this gold in Isaac and then this goo. James says to us that Elijah was a man just like us. And I want to say Isaac is a man just like me. Flawed. Abraham did exactly this thing with his wife, Sarah. When Abraham went to Egypt to flee a famine, he had the same thoughts. 
he said the same thing, she's my sister. And it created untold havoc in Egypt because Pharaoh took Sarah and was going to make, him, her his, make her his wife. Later on, Abraham went down to Gerar and stayed with King Abimelech and he said the same thing again about Sarah and it caused untold havoc in Gerar for King Abimelech and his people. And now Isaac does exactly the same thing. There's a family pattern, I think. I think it's partly because the values, the attitudes and the behaviours that we have are often ingrained by our culture, by our family, by our friends. And there is a pattern. And this pattern is that fear gives birth to doubts and many other ills that arise from it. It's a failing to trust God. And it stands in stark contrast to everything else that Isaac has been doing. His patience as he waits for Sarah in the barrenness. His patience to wait for a wife. His willingness to work through, or let God work through other people for him. His prayerfulness when they're faced with childless life. All those things. His move to Gerar to stay there counterculturally, counterintuitively. And then he gives way to this fear. And I'm forced to ask, what would you do if you were not afraid? I wonder what would have happened if Isaac had not been afraid. You see, in his fear, Isaac thought he could sort things out with his own wisdom, using his cunning and his efforts, because perhaps he didn't expect God to bless him. Perhaps he thought God couldn't do this thing. You know, I'm, as I'm thinking this thought, I'm reminded of Phil's sermon last week. What a great message, Phil. Do you remember Phil said, Jesus can switch the weather off and switch it on. If our God can do this, if our God can fling stars into space by a mere word, be, can't he look after our family needs? Can't he protect us? Can we doubt this God, our Redeemer? Well, we can. We do. Isaac did. Here is the goo. Isaac's deception is really pretty nasty. He took risks with Rebecca, his beloved wife. He prejudged Abimelech and his people. He was full of xenophobia and prejudice. Look at the havoc it caused. If we go back and look at what Abraham did, we see the havoc and the destruction that it caused for people. And so we see this radical faith in a flawed character. In Isaac we see gold mixed up with goo. And he's just like us, isn't he? He's just like me. 
But God is good. God is just and loving and patient, faithful and forgiving. God speaks to Abimelech in a dream so that Abimelech is saved with Sarah. God allows Abimelech to see Isaac and Rebekah together. So God is good even to Abimelech. God provides for Rebekah's safety. And Isaac is actually rescued from his own fear and folly by God's grace. Isaac is just as a man just like me. Is he just like you? A radical faith in a flawed person? Isaac is a man just like us. Alloy, gold and goo. We've got feet of clay, haven't we? Isaac stumbled on the fear of man. That's what it was, wasn't it? He trips over his own faithless desire to control things and he falls down in learned behaviours. Isn't that our story? It's my story, is it yours? There is good news though, really good news for all of us who have feet of clay. All of us who are a mixture of gold and goo. God accepted Isaac as God had accepted his father Abraham. In Romans chapter 4, Paul says to us, these people were credited a right relationship with God on the basis of their believing. This righteousness with God, this right relationship means that They'd fulfilled everything that God required for a proper relationship, for a friendship with God. And Abraham was called the friend of God. Isaac is told to us to be a man whom God blessed and accepted, a man through whom God would bless the whole of the world. And it was on the basis of their faith, their believing This righteousness, this right relationship, this fulfilling of everything that's required, it works like this, you see. God sees your trust in Jesus. He doesn't see your tripping. He doesn't see your stumbling. He doesn't even see your falling. He sees the gold, not the goo. God accepts our offerings, your offerings, your service and sacrifice, through your believing Jesus. Jesus' offering becomes yours. You see, when we believe, what we do is we step out of the whole thrust of the rebellion of humanity. We have to go right back to the beginning of humanity, to Adam and Eve. Right at the beginning of time, Adam and Eve were tempted and sinned. Some people say their sin was sexual. Some people say the sin was taking the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. But if we read carefully, Genesis actually says the sin that they fell into was to be like God. They were going to take control of their own lives. They were going to manage their own destiny. And why? Because the devil sowed in their hearts this idea, this fear that God couldn't do it. 
And so Adam and Eve took and ate and the whole human race was infected with rebellion. The whole human race began this journey away from God. When we hear the gospel, when we we hear God saying, I love you, here is my solution, and you say, yes, God, I believe, then what we do, what you do in that moment is you step out of that flow of humanity away from God and turn back to God, believing him. You see, the whole point is your believing is the opposite to Adam's unbelieving. Your trusting is the opposite to Adam's untrusting. Your acceptance of God, your belief that he is God who loves, who is great, who is good, who is holy, is the exact opposite to Adam's belief that God wasn't trustworthy, that God wasn't good enough and that Adam should be as God. And so God sees not the goo. God doesn't see the trips and the stumbles and the falls. He sees the faith. And that faith in you is credited to you as everything required for a right relationship with God, to be called the friend of God, just as Isaac was, just as Abraham was, just as Joseph. This is good news, isn't it? This is freedom. This is peace for us. Because in Jesus Christ, God sees not the goo, not the clay, not the tripping, stumbling and the falls, but the gold of our faith. And so we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you believed Jesus? Have you said to God, yes, God, I believe. Yes, God, I believe. This then is peace. Peace for your soul, peace for your life, peace for eternity. God counts your faith towards him as everything required. Death swallowed up in victory. Fear conquered by faith. Hope and life and joy. Do you know this peace? Do you know this freedom? Do you have this hope? Do you know today, right now, God wants you simply to say, I believe and I receive. Let's pray together.